The climb is the best part. And you might say, well, well, you've been to the top, so it's easy for you to say. Please trust me. I have never met a successful person who didn't agree with me and say the climb was the best part. Uh, every, everybody says, when I got to the top, I said, ah, now what? Or ah, the view. Oh my God, I'm so happy. Now what? And they look for the next climb. This is for the others out there, the other ambitious people who want to play at a higher level in their life. It's time to get curious and get real. Join me, and together, let's find the others. Hey, everybody, welcome back to another episode of Find the Others podcast. I am your host, Joshua Church. Grateful to have you with us. New episodes are dropping every Wednesday and Sunday, so be sure to hit the subscribe button so that you can get the notification when a new episode comes out. And give me a follow on Instagram at Joshua Dean Church to catch different clips and highlights that I post. Also, if you're enjoying the podcast, you find something that might be valuable, please be sure to share it with a friend who also might be into it so that together we can continue to grow our tribe of others. Today, I'm pumped to bring you a great conversation I had with Stacy Feinberg. Stacy is an investor, philanthropist, advisor, and producer who is passionate about empowering female and minority entrepreneurs. After college, Stacy became a pioneer in the sports entertainment law space. Beyond negotiating contracts, she also helped manage every aspect of the lives and careers of over 300 clients, including people like Larry Bird, Joe Montana, Larry King, and new kids on the block. In 1998, she formed JLF Asset Management with her now ex-husband, and with $1 billion in assets, they were named to Barron's 2007 list of top 30 hedge funds in the world. In 08, Stacy pivoted to pre-IPO investing, and some of her early stage investments in include Uber, Facebook, Alibaba, Zico Water, and Michael Kors. Now she's committed to supporting women in launching and scaling their businesses. She's also the producer of a Broadway play that has been nominated for 15 Tony Awards, including Best Musical, A Fun Story, which we get into. None of these accolades capture the firepower, passion, and spirit that Stacey imbues in every room that she walks into. We had such an incredible conversation around following the breadcrumbs, leading with curiosity, networking, impact investing, mindset, life philosophies, and everything in between. I catch myself saying this a lot, but this truly was one of my favorite episodes, and you are about to see why. Without further ado, please welcome Stacey Feinberg. Stacy, so happy to have you on the podcast. Thanks for coming so on. So happy to be here. It's so cool. I love how this worked out. A little I, impromptu trip for uh, the baby shower. There and are then, no accidents, That's Joshy. right. That's right. You've been on my list to get on the show for a while, so I'm glad that it worked out and you decided to stay an extra day so we could hang out and uh, and have a convo. My pleasure. I'm so happy to be here. I love it. Uh, what I mean, I feel like this is kind of very much your style, just going with the flow with things. Is that is that a big philosophy for you in life, just going with the flow? It drives everybody in my world crazy, but it is who I am. And I, I am what I am, and I uh, live off the, you know, I fly off the seat of my pants. Yeah. I don't have a master plan. People are always talking about a five-year, 10-year, and I'm sure you even, you know, encourage that. Yeah. I don't. Mm. Am I in it? You know, am I in a rowboat with no paddles and just letting the ocean take me? Probably. But it's exciting and it's fun and it's an adventure and I wake up every day not knowing 
where I might head. Now, that being said, I have certain guardrails. Right. So I don't go off of a cliff of, you know, down a waterfall. But that being, but I also, I like, uh, I like to zig and zag. And <laughs> I find that if you take a straight line, uh, it's boring. Yeah. That's so interesting. So you, you do that at the same time, it seems like the the boat that you're rolling in has led you to some pretty incredible places. So what do you attribute that to? So I'm a believer in breadcrumbs. Okay. I think I live my life with a little basket on my arm, uh, a la Little Red Riding Hood. And as I go, I pick up little breadcrumbs. I don't know what they mean. They're a little, we might call them coincidences. We might call them whatever you want to say. But I always save them for later because I never know when they're going to come in handy or when it's going to come relevant, show themselves to me. These things can be people, mm. they can be opportunities, they can be products, they can be places, but whatever it is, I put them in my basket and then without fail, they are made, they, they make themselves uh, known to me. Right. Ultimately, there are very few things that are in there that don't. Mm. And uh, so I, I make sure that I pick them up along the way and make sure that I you know don't walk past them. Because so they're going to come in handy down the road. That's so funny. I, I and people listening will re- remember the. Um, I, I have a saying that I use a lot often on this podcast, which is follow the breadcrumbs. It's like there's a next indicated step, and you pick that up and follow that, and then it leads you to the next step, and the next step, and the next step. So that's that's so that's so amazing. What are some of the yeah, What are some of the beautiful breadcrumbs that you've picked up throughout your career and your life? Well, you know, and and the other thing is is that sometimes things will show them to you immediately and sometimes mm. it will be 10 years down the road right. and you don't know that and that's part of what's so exciting is that you know you know it's going to come i'm I, we spoke about this i'm a fatalist yeah now that doesn't mean we don't have free choice of course we do but i also sometimes feel that stuff's going to happen and, and you got to roll with it and you've got to be able to in some certain circumstances be teflon mm. you know and, and not take on too much but um i'm I feel a lot. I'm a very sensitive person. And so I'm a passionate person. And when I get involved in something, I give it 120%. And that's just how I am. So when I chose to commit myself to motherhood mm-hmm. and being a mom, in those days, you had to make a choice. And it was a significant decision, work or be a mom. Right. And thankfully now, women really don't have that same choice. But we didn't have the ability to be entrepreneurs like you can be now, mm-hmm. where you can take your tot and toe. Uh, so... You, you either were in or you weren't. And um, so I gave it all to being a mother and I loved it. Yeah. And then I realized my kids were growing up and they were leaving and now what? Right. So I prepared for the empty nest very early on and went into my bag of bread comes and I was in a philanthropy group, which is something women are very comfortable with. I don't know why. If it's not for profit, we're like, sign me up. But yeah. if it's for profit, we're like, ooh, I don't know. I let me think about that. And I'm trying to teach women that for-profit is not a dirty word. Mm. It's a wonderful thing. And by the way, if you make a huge profit, you can give it away to not-for-profits. Right. <laughs> it's pretty simple, right? Yeah. So um, that's impact investing right there, right? Yeah. So um, anyway, I, I got myself prepared and I we were uh, called Circle of Angels. And I always thought, you know, this is so wonderful and I love this. I wonder if it's ever going to be more than this. And it did become more than that because it taught me how to do due diligence. Mm. And I was doing it on 501c3s, but nevertheless, they're still businesses. Are they worthy of our grant money? Um, And the other thing is I started doing microfinance loans. And I did them to women, just Mm. women and minorities. Most of them were immigrants to the San Diego area. My repayment rate was 98.6%. Wow. There's no bank in the world that has that kind of repayment rate. The women did not know it was a 501c3. I didn't want them to. I wanted them to feel it was a business transaction. Mm-hmm. And they were very proud to give to pay back the money. 
This was not huge money, micro, right? So $1,000, they buy a couple of vacuums. They have a cleaning business, you know, right. whatever it is. Um, and that taught me a lot about women and minorities. And then I started thinking to myself, well, they really don't have access to capital. It's so hard for them. I mean, I can see a bunch of guys, with all due respect, who can raise $10 million yeah. having beers, you know, with their bros. But these women and minorities, they just, they don't have the friends and family. They don't have that network to go to mm -hmm. in the early, in the seed stages. So then I thought, wow, what if I took what I'm doing at the not-for-profit level and it's basically called angel investing. And I taught myself how to become an angel investor. So I went from literally having a hedge fund with my husband at the time, right. which couldn't be more different than angel investing. It took me a year to not be embarrassed to ask these questions that I just assumed because of you know, all those years of being in the public markets, you're not allowed to ask certain things mm. to realize, no, no, I'm a partner with them. I need to know everything. Was that a great shift? Did it, you like that shift going from public to private in that while way? While we were living our life, building our company, I used to say to my husband at the time, we don't have anything that we can point to as a legacy. We don't make anything. He'd say, well, we create jobs, we create wealth. He'd say, no, we make rich people richer. And don't get me wrong, we have a lovely life and I'm grateful. But a carpenter can point to a table and say, I made that, you know? And I never mm. had ownership or pride of ownership. I was never at a grassroots level. I'm at like mid-cap mid growth stocks. Like how far away can you be? Um, <laughs> and when we closed the hedge fund and now I had the means, I said, oh, wow, now I can actually make a difference. Mm. So angel investing is truly getting in at the grassroots and so getting at seed um, Series A. The farthest I go is Series B. But I had to teach myself. Yeah. And so I joined angel groups. And there are lots of them out there. Um, I went to the ACA, the you know angel group of America, to get some local ones. I joined Golden Seeds. I joined a whole bunch of different groups. Mm -hmm. And um, it turns out that what I was doing not for profit, I was just now doing for so hopefully for profit. So that seems like a breadcrumb that you, while you were doing the philanthropy work and the non-for-profit, you didn't know that that was going to lead towards exactly. building the skill set exactly. for this. Which is really my passion now. Mm. So you just don't know what you're doing along the way that down the road is going to become extraordinarily helpful. And now I teach a lot of women, um, and men too, but mostly women. Right. I teach them how to do this. It's not hard. And if your check is $50 or $500,000, uh, you might put a little bit more work into the 500,000, but it's, mm -hmm. it's, it, your means is your means. And so it doesn't matter. And you're going to do the same amount of work. Um, the same questions have to be, have to be asked and answered. Yeah. Um, and so I like to teach women how to do this. And again, when they say, oh, but I, I hear all the time about impact investing and I do do impact investing, but I'm not ashamed to say that I've made a ton of money on Peloton. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm making a ton of money on Allbirds right now. And that's right. okay. And those are not female founders. And that's okay because I'm going to utilize those proceeds. Right. It's it's a tool. The, so the money. Sh a, I shift it. You yeah, shift it from exactly. here to there. Yeah, and that's yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. Did you? So when you were when you were growing up, what was what was your first job out of college? How did you get on this career path? I was always a hustler. Yeah. I was I get always that sense. <laughs> I was always hustling, and, and I loved it. And my parents had a lot of means, but we didn't know it. And what a blessing that was. Mm. I'd ask my dad for twenty bucks. He'd say, "Get a job." I'd say, "I have a job. I'm a waitress at Friendly's." So he'd say, "Get more hours." So that was great. And um, I'd come home with a dirty apron stained with ice cream stuff all over it mm -hmm. and, you know, $32 in quarters. And I was so proud of that. Yeah. And so I've always been like that. And I've always felt self-sufficient. And when I went to Northwestern, the only thing my dad would give me is a, uh, I had a car that I had paid for, mm -hmm. but he gave me a gas card. 
Nice. That was it. So I waitressed at Northwestern, and then I came up with an idea to drive everybody to the airport. This is way pre-Uber, <laughs> yeah. like, like 40 years pre-Uber. And I made my classes. I did my finals way before everybody else. I got them all done earlier, my thing, midterms as well, so I could drive people back and forth from Evanston to O'Hare Airport. Wow. And had that gas card, so my costs are kind of covered, and no harm, I no foul. I love that. Utilizing your resources, huh? I sold cookware door to door. I sold waterless mm -hmm. cookware. I sold knives. I want a trip to Italy because mm -hmm. I sold so many knives. So I've always been a passionate. And one of the things I tell young people now, sales will never go out of style. We will always need great writers and salesmen. Mm. And you might say, what's my product? Well, it's you. You're, the very first thing you're going to sell is you. You're right. always selling you. And then other products will come along. And so, you know, I, I see kids who come out of, you know, Harvard Business School and they're like, well, I don't know what other tools I might want to need or have in my tool belt. And I'll say, have you done any sales? Go do some. Yeah. Because computers will not replace you. That's I right. promise you. And same with great writers. Mm. I can't say the same about math geniuses and quants, right? Because they can get replaced. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, that's when I, when I did sales out of college as well, it was such a great learning ground from not only the, the tactical side of how to sell something, which it really empowers you because I know with the skills I've built, I will never go hungry because I can sell, right? Exactly. And as long as you have a skill like that, then you know that you can have a job. If you're working 100% commission based, it doesn't matter because you can go sell something. And you believe in yourself. Right. Because you have to. That's it. And the safety more nets can be dangerous, by the way. Mm. And it sounds like so growing up for, from you working with uh, and having the influence from your dad, you grew up in very much of that entrepreneurial kind of. But next thing mindset. I know, I'm like I'm head of, you know, I'm, I'm running this uh, sports and entertainment firm with my dad right. and running the literary division. And um, and that was thrilling and exciting. And again, it's all sales. Yeah. So people would say to me, oh, as an agent. So when I ran, I opened a literary division because we were giving away 15% of every book we did, whether it was Joe Montana, Larry Bird, you name it. I said, that's 15% we can keep. I'm going to go learn how to be a literary agent. I moved to New York. I went to work for the person that we were paying 15% to. I said, don't pay me, just teach me. And I watched, I listened, I sat in the corner, I looked over their shoulders, and then I had an idea for the first book. And then I brought it to them. They said, we don't do children's books. I said, no, you don't understand these people sell $250,000 a night in buttons. Now, this is 1990. That group was called New Kids on the Block. There's not a lot of listeners. You can Google them, but trust me when I tell yeah. you, they were like the Beatles at the time. Oh, yeah. I went to uh, the head of Bantam Double Day Dell. She gave me a million-dollar advance for these kids. So uh, the best part is, is that the literary agency said, this is below us. So you're going to have to do this one on your own in your free time. So they got nothing. Yeah. That was my first book. It's an annuity. I still get little checks that I send to Donnie Wahlberg. No way. I do. And so again, I believed in myself. I went and got another skill set that came in really handy. Am I a great, am I a great writer? No, but I know how to sell a, a great writer. Mm. And I can write a great one-page pitch. And that's good enough. And I always say to writers, like, here's my 300-page manuscript. I'm like, no, because no editor is going to want to look at that. Okay, they're probably not pages anymore right there. But still. Yeah. Give me 30 amazing pages mm -hmm. that are going to make them go, I need more. Not 300 where every weekend they go, I really should get to that. But Jesus, that's a lot of pages. Right. So just gotta, You got to sell them the feeling. You got to get them in the emotion into it, right? And if they're not taken in the first five pages, if I'm not taken in the first couple of pages, mm -hmm. you know, and if I can't believe in you, I can't represent you. So anyway, so I, I did go into that field, which was exciting. And I, I learned a lot about branding and messaging. Mm -hmm. It was my responsibility 
where, you know, certain things like when Magic Johnson uh, had AIDS and they said, you know, it's going on the wire service in 20 minutes. We need a response from Larry Bird. That was my, I'm 23 years old and that was my right. responsibility. Um, and, you know, I, I, I got a lot of responsibility very young. Um, my dad was very hard on me. It's very hard to work for your parents. Mm. But I have to say, he made me really good. Yeah. Now I quit once a month and cried twice a month. But nevertheless, <laughs> he made me good. So what was it like being, you know, that young, that early in your career and you're working with some big name celebrities, big name people, you're getting some incredible exposure? Was that was that challenging? Was that difficult? Was that enjoyable? What was that time like for you? I was brought up with so much confidence mm. that I never thought... How am I going to do this? I can't figure this out. I need help. I really didn't. I just always thought, I'll figure it out. I don't, I don't, I'm not the smartest person in the room, but I think I have a very good, I think I'm, I'm really savvy and I can figure things out. Mm. And I say to a lot of kids who tell me how they're, you know, their IQs and they're this and they're geniuses. And I'm like, but how's your EQ? And they don't even know what I'm talking right. about. I'm like, here, Daniel Goldman, read this book. Like emotional intelligence will take you a lot mm. farther, especially nowadays than intellect, in my humble opinion. I love that. I think it's a combination of that and then also grit. I don't know if you've read the book, uh, Grit by Angela Duckworth, I think is her name. But just that ability and what I'm hearing from you and taking away also is is you, you trust in your resolve to figure it out and you trust in your ability to, hey, I might get smacked with a challenge here. I might feel like I'm going to, I want to quit once a month or I'm breaking down crying. I can't tell you how many times that happens to me too, but I know that this is just going to lead me to the next step and this is just going to help me and pre- this is preparing me for what I've asked for. And that's why I can go by the seat of my pants mm. because I have the confidence that whatever comes and gets thrown at me, I'll deal with it. And actually it's kind of exciting. Yeah. If it's, if you're over-prepared, like when I give, I, I, I do a lot of public speaking, I do a lot of webinars now, but they were seminars. I never have uh, something prepared. I just like to talk off the cuff and I find it comes out so much better. And I, I read the room. I get a sense of my audience. Yeah. And if I'm going in a direction where they're all of a sudden like checking their phones, I'm like, oh no, that come on back, come back this way, girl. So, so it sounds like you were always, you were always kind of like that growing up too. Is that and right? And my grandmother was like and that. And your grandmother was like that. I hear about how entrepreneurial okay. she was and kind of street smart she was. And so I got, I guess I got that from her and from my father. Is that something that can be learned and developed or is that something innate, would you say? Combination? I think it's innate, but can, but it certainly can be developed. Mm-hmm. And so, like I said, with uh, I'll use my son, who I'm so proud of, and he graduates from Harvard with a 3.9, and he's you know ready to take this great private equity job. And then he says, you know, I really want to do something different. And he ends up taking something. He says, but I don't know what that something else will be. He's charming. He's kind. He has a high EQ and a high IQ, so he's a unicorn. Right. And uh, he's doing sales now, and he is doing so great. And I'm so proud of him because whatever he ends up, this may be his forever job. But if it isn't, he is getting a skill set right mm. now that is going to really serve him well. When I watch him do that, I see and hear a lot of the things that I have said and done, and now he's doing it, and it makes my heart just feel so full when I see that. Because you can tell people what to do, but mm. it's really what, what you show them that they're actually going to yeah. copy. So. so I can imagine, when did you have Robbie? When did you have your first son? I was 32. 32. So okay. I had a full career okay. before I wasn't a kid. Oh, it, was that, it seems like that might've been, did that feel like a challenging decision for you? Is it something you knew you always wanted to do? But it sounds like you were building a lot of momentum in your career. Where were you at in your career at that time? I, I, I supported my husband at the time. Mm-hmm. So we met when I was just out of Northwestern and he's a junior at Tufts. So I supported us for a good eight years. Um, and I, I worked a few different jobs. And then when it came time for business school, only one of us could go. So he went and I worked three jobs. But wow. I loved it. Yeah. And I have to be honest, and I'm going to say something to your listeners, and I hope they take this to heart. 
the climb is the best part. Hmm. And you might say, well, well, you've been to the top, so it's easy for you to say. Please trust me. I have never met a successful person who didn't agree with me and say the climb was the best part. Uh, every, everybody says, when I got to the top, I said, ah, now what? Or ah, the view. Oh my God, I'm so happy. Now what? And they look for the next climb. So please mm. make sure that you pay attention and you enjoy the climb. And don't rush the climb. Enjoy every view. I mean, you're, you're a mountain climber. Yeah, So totally. you Just can relate to this, week. right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And you know, don't rush to the top. Enjoy each precipice as it comes along. Because mm. before you know it, you'll be at the top and you're going to say, beautiful. Now what? By the time you get to the top, it's old news. It's like you're, you're, you're looking for the next peak, right? It's uh, one of the things that I learned from mountain climbing is is that it really helps me understand. Like even last week we were on the mountain, we didn't we didn't get to the summit, and some people were like so upset that we didn't get to the summit because and and it was outside of our control too because of the weather and avalanche conditions. But it's it, it's part of it, and and the way that I view it too, and I learned this from another guy I was climbing a mountain with in in Africa. He said that um, it's I was asking him about the journey versus the destination. You know, it's kind of this, especially as go getters and people that are very growth oriented, but also wanting to be fulfilled and enjoy the process like how do you reconcile the the journey and the destination and he said it's really not one or the other i like to say it is both it's about epic journeys to incredible destinations i love that and and i really like that i'm curious to get your thoughts on journey destination enjoying the moment but also striving and not being complacent it was also working towards something how do you view tell me more about the climb if you don't have a reason to get up in the morning you're in trouble so be passionate about something anything Something, whatever it is, you need a reason to open up your eyes and want to jump out of bed. And I hear so many people who have extraordinary means and they say, you know what? Uh, life is, a, I'm a little bored. I have nothing that I'm working towards and they're lost. And I, I meet so many women and people who don't have a lot of money always say, when I have this, mm. I'll be happy. When I have that, I'll be happy. Happiness is not a destination. Happiness is the journey. And you have to remember that. Mm. Like I said, and I'm not kidding here, the people's happiest times are on those journeys. And then savor every, you know, be fulfilled along the way. Savor every win. Don't just wait for that, like you said, being at the very top. Savor when you got to that next level, right? And mm. say, ah, don't forget to stop and enjoy that. Pat yourself on the back. Stay there for a little while. Because ultimately, you may run out of mountains to climb. Mm. And then you're going to get to that, now what? And I know a lot of your listeners are young and they think, well, I'll be, that'll never happen to me. Well, that's what everybody says. Yeah. I think a lot of, a lot of people our age, my age, they, they think, that we think that, um, that same thing when I make it there and it's, it's kind of this far out distant thing, but it's also, well, it's, it's easy for us to say now, but when we get there, it's going to be a whole lot different. It's going to be a whole well, lot make better. goals for yourself. Mm -hmm. Even micro goals are fabulous uh, because you want the reason to jump out of bed. Yeah. You want that reason to be like, ah, what a great day this is going to be. I'm so excited to hit the ground running. And there's, I'm telling you, there's a huge population that have the means but they don't have the right. you know, reason. And what kind of life is that? No, what, yeah. Exactly. So you feel irrelevant mm -hmm. and you feel left behind. And 
And that's when people get into trouble. And that's mm-hmm. when depression can sit in and all sorts of other things that really can come in and, and rear their ugly head because it's hard to fight them. And you see it all the time. Uh, Jim Carrey, one of my favorite quotes from him, he says, I, I, I wish that everybody could get rich and famous to realize that it's not what they wanted. <laughs> and yeah. it's like you see people who make it up to the top of the summit, whatever they're climbing, and they're saying this message, they're saying the same thing. And it's I think it's important for us to really to listen. And that's why I love startups. Yeah. Because I feel like I get to have these mini climbs with all my founders along mm. the way. And I love being the earlier the better. Yeah. I mean, don't get me wrong, I I, I like pre-rev is, is hard. But um I love being at this grassroots level with my, I'm going to say my, my gals, because most of them that I yeah. invested in, I've got about 24 portfolio companies right now, Wonderful. and almost all of them are women. And one of my investing theses is, is so eight are going to go under. Mm. It just is. Yeah. Hey, the book industry, which I was in, the movie industry, which I've dabbled in, the, the same with startups. Ironically, it's the same thing. It's eight out of 10. Mm. Ironic, right? But I don't know why. 80% gone. One, you get your money back. That's a win, Right. To me, you're yeah, back. And one's going to be a 1020X that's going to subsidize all the others. It's just how it is. It's at the box office. Law of the numbers, it right? What it is. So if it's going to be one of those eight, and there's a good probability to be one of those eight, was I proud that my check made, made tried to make a difference? Mm-hmm. Was it something that if it did you know, come to fruition would change the world? Um, and that's how I kind of, that's how I, I do my investing thesis. So um, first of all, it has to be a huge problem. So don't come to me with uh, a problem that's unique to you and 11 of your friends. Like this has to be one of the world's biggest problems that you have to solve. And that's how you have the biggest TAM, total addressable market, is having this huge problem that you're going to address. Those are first and foremost, but you can't do any of those without a great team. So those are the three things that I look at when I say, do I want to be a part of this team? Because I'm going to become a part of your team. I I just don't write a check. I become a strategic advisor alongside you. A partner, if you will. And so are you going to be the one that's going to run? Because there's so many great products that never never get made. And there's a lot of great founders that just can't find the right product. Um, I, I'm a, a, One of the things that I also do to try to level the playing field is I'm an LP in a number of funds. So I have my own fund. It's self-funded. It's called 33 Capital. Mm-hmm. Best part is because it's self-funded, I'm free to do whatever I want. I love my investor. I have no problem. And, no drama. And I did, yeah, low drama, which I love. Uh, I I just invested in in ketamine. Like I I was an early investor in cannabis because I could. You know, I think psychedelics are cool. Yeah. They're groovy. So I don't have to discuss that with anybody but myself. Um, that being said, I also think it would be irresponsible to not be an LP in female funds. And so every year I try to put my money where my mouth is and join, write a check to as many funds that are starting up by women or minorities. Um, and that's another way where I, so I have one that's a great, great gal named Heather Hartnett called Human Ventures out of New York. And they actually take fabulous people and they find the right companies for them. Hmm. It's a little bit different. So they don't just have people coming to them with ideas. They cultivate these people. They then put the proper idea with them. It's, it's, it's kind of interesting Mm -hmm. and they're doing wonderfully. So again, you have to have all that, all those pieces 
to make it work. So when you talk about finding something that you're passionate about to wake up for in the morning, is this is this the lane that you find yourself in at this moment is is empowering these female entrepreneurs, minority entrepreneurs and, and helping them build their business? I love it. Yeah. I love getting it. But just like I love, I guess I was, a, I'm, I'm very nurturing mm-hmm. and I love being a parent and I, I like to be everybody's parent. Right. I still love to be everybody's parent, whether they like it or not. I'm everyone's Jewish mother. Yeah. <laughs> That's you, like the tagline like, right? for right? Stacey Feinberg. Everybody's <laughs> everyone's Jewish, Jewish mother. mother. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, so I can't turn that on and off. And so I do that with my founders as well. And I love their wins are my win. Their losses mm-hmm. are my losses. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm with them every you know step of the way. And, um, you know, so I, I feel like I'm at a stage of my life right now where I, I, d- I don't have the empty nest. Because I have all these fabulous 20-somethings that I'm working with. And there are also some 50-somethings out there. Let me tell you, there's also women that were amazing, you know, rock stars who had to make that really hard decision mm-hmm. to leave their job and raise their families. And then their kids are gone. And then they go, now what? Oh, crap. I wasn't prepared for this. Nobody told me I'd be irrelevant. Nobody told me I had a shelf life. Mm. I'm really screwed. Because guess what? There's not a a lot of employers out there saying, hey, give me somebody with a 20-year gap on their resume who made sandwiches and went on field trips. Like, no, they are not banging on your door. Right. But they're great women. And so I help to try to place them in good opportunities because, hey, they're multitaskers. Mm -hmm. They got the job done. Mm -hmm. They had all this great background. They just need to be in a new opportunity. And so I love working with those women as well. That's beautiful. When you were saying about things to wake up and be passionate about, um, I think it's important to note too that it doesn't necessarily have to be your career even, right? It can be a hobby. It can be um, activities that you do. It can be a passion you're working towards. I think that that, that's a big thing that a a lot of young people get stuck in. It's like, well, I hate my job, so therefore my life sucks and I'm just on this like in a repeat loop. But what is your advice to people like that to go find these other things that light them up, whether it's first of all, those make you interesting. Mm. Okay. So if all you're doing is trying to improve your resume, well, I think you're probably going to end up pretty boring and maybe successful, but pretty boring. Mm. I don't want to sit next to you at a dinner party. I want to sit next to the person who says, Oh, I tried this and it was a colossal failure. And then I did this and that. And you want interesting people who've done interesting things. Passion is passion. And I don't care if it's getting up to see the sunrise each morning and that is the best part of your day or the sunset and that's the best part of your day or running. Uh, when my kids were in school and now I found myself with some a block of time in mm-hmm. the middle, if I wasn't feeding lunch at the cafeteria, I started playing tennis. I loved it. I, I arranged my whole life and my kids' life around my tennis matches. It was so great. Was I making any money from it? No. Did it? Was it a resume builder? No. But I loved it and I felt part of a team. And it made me feel whole and it made me feel complete and I loved it. Well, I moved and I never found that group again. And there was a big hole in my life from not having that. So I found things that made me money and I found things, but I never could recapture mm-hmm. that excitement of putting on my you know, team uniform, going out and having a match. And so, like I say, you're, you're right, passion, passion. One of the things I, I like to tell people is, Live your life like you're writing your eulogy, not your resume. Because at the end of your life, people are going to talk about how you made them feel, the things that you did, the things you did together, the, the, the good deeds that you did, not the money you made, mm-hmm. not your accomplishments. They're not going to get up 
and at your, you know, at your grave site and say, and he founded this company at the age of 26 and then he went IPO at this, he had four IPOs and six and they came out at 27 and after six months the stock tripled and no, that isn't what they're going to say. Hmm. They're going to talk about what a wonderful human being you were and they're going to tell stories about you and they're going to tell anecdotes. So live your light, give people anecdotes, give them great stories to share about you, make them feel, don't just make them money. Ooh, that's good. I love that. I like that a lot. Make them feel, not make them money. Um, that's that's really, really beautiful. Um, so what, what role would you say, I wanted to ask you, uh, what role would you say the community plays in your life? If you're talking about, it sounds like tennis was a big Just like my that. analogy about tennis, I never found my group. Yeah. I didn't find my your others. others. <laughs> and I searched. Don't get me wrong, I did, but I just didn't. And I put my tennis bag down for 11 years. And then this winter, and my kids would say, Mom, where's your tennis racket? Where's your, you know, whatever. You, you know, for 10 years, there's pictures of you in tennis gear, and now we haven't seen you in a visor in like 11 years. What's going on? I finally said, yeah, what is going on? And the girl next door is a great high school tennis player. And I knocked on her door and she's 17 years old. I'm like, hi. She's like, hi, Mrs. Feinberg. What are you doing here? Are you looking for my mother? I said, no, I'm looking for you, Alexis. Can I play tennis with you? I'll, I'll pay you. I'll give you 50 bucks to hit with me for an hour. She yeah. said, you will? I said, yeah. And we did. And I got back into it. And I was like, oh, the passion is, is ignited again. Mm -hmm. And I was so excited. And it was so funny because her mother's like, wow, you're spending a lot of time with my daughter. What's going on? And I'm like, she's doing a good deed. I really appreciate what she's doing for me because she's igniting a passion that I thought was mm. long gone and lost forever. So now I'm back into tennis so and good. everybody kind of laughs when I show up my stuff that was like state of the art in 2008, mm -hmm. but I don't care because I'm getting myself back into it. And, you know, I'm not the tennis whore that I once was, but <laughs> I am getting back into the group That's really and good. finding my others. Yeah. And by the way, they're like, they're, they're, you're, they're, they're when you find others, you're like-minded. So it's like you almost have that one hurdle of what would we have in common? You already, you've already done that hurdle because mm -hmm. you know what you have in common. Mm -hmm. That's the reason that you're together in that moment. And then if you can find other th similarities and other things that bond you, how wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. And the, the thing that I find that amplifies the, the others in your relationship is when you are on the climb together, like what more fulfilling thing than being on the climb? Like it sounds like with, with your gals, with your, with the, with the woman that you're partnering with, with your founders, with your tennis mates, whatever it is, when you're on with my brother and cousin, when we're on the mountain or with a team when we're doing triathlon, whatever it is, when you're on a team and you're sh under that shared suffering almost together, that's, that's the most fulfilling thing when you look back oh, at it. The feeling of joy more joy. You just can't have enough yeah. joy. And you can't buy that joy. You know, when you've, when you've scored that point or you've, whatever, whatever it is done. I don't like singles. I really don't. I love doubles. Um, and I think that says a lot about me as a person. Mm -hmm. I love being part of a team. I love collaborating. I often say this to, to women that men are naturally competitive. Women are naturally collaborative. Hmm. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm a tough bitch on the tennis court, okay? Yeah. My competitive juices will, will come out. But by nature, I'm collaborative. And so one of the things I tell uh, a lot of the women when they come in and, and do their pitch for me is I say to them, you're, you're, this will be worth your time. I will never waste your time. You might not leave with a check or a wire transfer now, but yeah. you might not leave with capital, but you're not going to leave empty-handed because I want you to succeed. You might leave with a name, a strategic advisor, um, 
you know, a, a place step. to a place to be able to, you know, to get to get your uh, products cheaper or whatever it is. I'm going to give you something um, because I want to I want to work with you. And I think again, a lot of women are naturally collaborative, so don't hide it. Don't try mm-hmm. to say oh, I'm going to be as competitive as the next guy. Use that collaborative nature to your benefit. I bet that takes the edge off too when people are pitching, knowing it's like you're going to get something out of this. I bet it takes the edge off to allow them to really open Sometimes up. Sometimes they're stumbling, and I say, yeah. oh, "Go take a breath. Yeah. Go, just go take. You know, go to the ladies' room, put some lipstick on, it'll make you feel better. Like, right. just do whatever it takes. I'm not going anywhere. Come yeah. on back. Like, it's all That's right. Beautiful. It's relaxed. And again, it's so opposite from what I was before. Where it was I? I say that a lot of men play gotcha, gotcha. They spend all the time asking questions till they can get to that point of gotcha. You don't know your numbers. You don't know this, right? And women, I play, I got ya. Mm. I got ya. It's okay. Like, and that's a very different feeling, is it not? It certainly is. And so I'm going to help you. I got ya. I am not here to trap you. Mm. And um, so I think that helps a lot of women to feel uh, that they're safer yeah, and that more comfortable and then they can just give it their all and be the best they can be. So good. How, how do you, sh- you show up at a very high level. You bring a lot of energy every day and whatever it is you're doing, whether you're in listening to pitch, whether you're with your kids, you're with connection. How do you, how do you find that energy and how do you show up every day to bring that energy? Well, if I'm passionate about it, I can't turn it off. Mm. Right. So it's bubbling over inside me. But one of the things I really want to tell your listeners, is that I love my sleep. I love my downtime. Doing nothing is doing everything. When people say, oh, I can't do nothing. Like, I can't, like, that's, I can't just take a break. Yeah. Or, I'm like, no, no, you don't understand. You're recharging your batteries. It's so necessary. I drive a Tesla. If I don't stop and charge my Tesla, it ain't going anywhere, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So I'm really, it's really important when it has that eight hours overnight to recharge. And I feel the same about myself. And I tell that to a lot of my founders when they say, I'm working hundred hours a week. And I said, no, no, but are you getting, are you eating right? Are you taking care of yourself? Are you taking breaks? If someone says, oh, I'm so ashamed to say I took a nap. I'm like, oh, what a blessing. You took a nap. That's wonderful. Mazel tov. <laughs> yeah. You know? So, um, there's times to be quiet. There's times to recharge because you need that in order to then hit the ground running. Yeah. Downtime is so important. I, 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 for the past number of years, I've been observing Shabbat. So Saturday I do a digital detox and it's just, that's what it started as. It's just like, I'm going to do a day off of social media. I'm going to do a day. Okay. Maybe I'm going to do a day with my phone off completely. Maybe I'm going to turn my computer off. And it's like the single handedly greatest thing that I've introduced into my life to have that full day unplugged to recharge in that way. Cause then Sunday comes, I'm like, I'm ready to go. I'm rolling. I'm revved up. And so I'm did you do up. nothing? No, you did everything. Right. Right. But that, that can be really difficult because it, especially when we're so plugged in, there's no, there's no off button anymore. Right. We're, we're plugged into work. We're plugged into social media. We're plugged into everything right in our pocket. Constantly. And, and we're addicted. And we're addicted to it for sure. So we're addicted to, to doing something. I, I don't know if it's because maybe it gives us significance or it feels like we're doing something, but there's a big difference between being busy and being productive. Because we're busy writing our resumes right. as opposed to our eulogies. Right. And I remember I did a class at Harvard Business School called BEMS and one of the founders of Snapchat was, was amongst us. And he had said to us that it's, I go, oh my God. God, this is almost like a, you know, here, I'm like the, the oldest one in the group by like 25 yeah. years. I'm like, my God, I feel like I'm at like a, um, a slot machine. And he's like, yeah, we devise it that way. Right. 
um, you know, when you get that push notification, when you get that, you know, that, oh, that endorphin, that right. whatever, and it's very addictive and it's planned, mm-hmm. um, on purpose. Yeah. And so getting away from that is such an important thing. You know, this sounds like a cliche, but worry about love, not likes, right? Um, these, these people, how much does it take to touch your phone on the heart button? Nothing. Nothing. You can even do it by accident, but it takes a lot more when somebody reaches out to you. Even it's by text, but actually reaches out and makes connection with you. Yeah. That's what we should be spending our time on. Totally. Speaking about connection and making connection, it seems like you've built and amassed a, a pretty wide and diverse and beautiful network of people that you have around you, supporting you, different investments you've been making, col- collaboration with a lot of people. What, what's your philosophy on networking? Well, I love people. Mm-hmm. By nature, I'm a people person. I also, my father had a favorite uh poem. It was called If by Rudyard Kipling. And we had it behind his desk. And one of the lines in it is actually his tombstone, which is, he walked among kings, but never lost the common touch. And one of the things I loved about my dad is when we would go to, I don't know, Boston Garden, he would talk longer with the guy that parked his car than Red Auerbach who ran the team. He loved people and they were all incredibly Mm. important to him. And I feel the same. And so it serves me well in life because I can, there was actually a show that I wanted to, I was, I was asked to be on called um, Secret Millionaire, I think it was, or Hidden Millionaire, something like that. And I think I was perfect for that because I will wait tables. I will, you know, I, I, I don't, I don't, you know, I like, I don't attract gold diggers. I don't leave lead with my gold. So I, you know, just, um, you know, that people, I like when people go, oh, that's you. Right. Oh, you're the lead investor. Oh, you're the co-producer. Or, you know, head producer of this play. Or you're, you know, because they think, God, you're so normal or down to earth. And I say, well, why wouldn't I be? Um, because you don't ever want to become part of that rarefied air. You don't yeah. ever want to lose touch. Because once you lose touch, then now you're in this, you know, glass bubble where you aren't going to be relevant because you're not going to be able to relate to people. How have you not lost touch? Have you found yourself, has it, have, can you see how it's easy to lose touch? I can, because again, um, people get heady and they get excited. I'll find myself in situations where I pinch myself. I mean, I'm, you know, I'll be, I've spent a lot of time at Motel Sixes in yeah. Memphis and Akron, Ohio, okay, with boys AAU basketball teams. So that world is very different than when I'm with my fellow trustees of the Kennedy Center. Right. At the Honors you know, black tie event in December. So, and everything in between. And that's what makes life so interesting and so Mm. fascinating is that I have friends who I care about in all walks of life and all spectrums. um, And it makes it easier for me because I can relate to everything in between. And it makes me a more interesting person. Yeah. And it makes you, you know, and one of the funny things is people, uh, sorry, this is totally off. I don't know where this came from, but I hate when people say I'm bored. And I always say, Bored people are boring. I'm never bored. I'm curious by nature. I'm a very inquisitive person. But I think that makes me interesting because I'm so interested. So certainly does. I hear so many young people talking about being bored, and I I feel so bad for them because there's so many things out there to be interested in. I don't know how you would have time to be (laughs) bored, and I'm so sad that you're actually, you have become boring in the process. Anytime that I catch myself being like, ah, I don't know what to do, or I'm bored, or this is boring, I stop and think that 
we are spinning a thousand miles an hour on a planet called earth right in the cosmos floating on <laughs> on a rock in space and and i look into nature nature always brings that right back to me you see a butterfly fly That's across right. you're just like it and just zaps present. you back it brings you back to the present very very quickly well i was on a zoom call with not a lot of people unfortunately and and mark cuban was leading it and he was talking about ai and uh crypto and uh blockchain mm-hmm. and all these mm-hmm. things. And I made the huge mistake of saying, oh, this is so out of my wheelhouse. I don't feel comfortable. And I thought he would just be like, yeah, it's an all out of all our wheelhouses. But no, I did not get the pass. I got called out. And he was like, Stacy, he even used my name, which was even more embarrassing. He's like, with all due respect, Stacy, this is like 1991, and you're like, mm, I don't, I'm uncomfortable with this WW wide world web thing. I don't see it going anywhere. I don't, yeah, I don't, I don't want to learn too much about it because I see it's a fleeting passing. He said, "You spend an hour a day learning about AI. I do. Start spending an hour a day, mm. and you know what? Now I do." Cuban was right. What have you found with that? Uh, the more that I dig into it, the less I know. It's scary. Yeah. It is so out of my wheelhouse. But I better learn about it, or I'm going to be left behind. Right. So it is important, and crypto is. Odd, but you know what? It does make sense for lots of different different things. And I think the blockchain is going to be imperative. Um, and so I, I need to learn about it. Now, I'm, you know, I'm not in my 20s, but how great to be in your later stage of life and always learning about these new things. Again, that curious nature is serving me well. Mm. And sometimes I'll bring something up with my kids. And I don't mean just using cool words like lit or fire. I mean, like talking about things that like, like, hey, I'm an early investor in ByteDance. So I was familiar with TikTok way before my kids were doing their inappropriate dances. I was, you know, I I know all about this. I'm from the inside out. So again, it's my curious nature that like makes me be able to talk to 18-year-olds and 78-year-olds and have something to talk with all of them about because it's the things I knew about back in the day and the things that I'm actually curious about learning about now. So if if I'm in a room and someone brings up Dogecoin and they go, ooh, where do I buy that? And I can giggle because I know that, you know, it's made up by Elon Musk yeah. and they don't like, so like, yeah, it helps me be embarrassed a little less. I like that. And I feel like it adds more value to your life too. And and when you're talking about your dad spending more time talking with the valet than the owner of the team, it, 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 it really leads me to, to believe that there's, that's a massive skill to have, to be able to connect and relate and not lose common touch with whatever. It, it reminds me of uh, Ethics of Our Fathers, who is a wise man, he who learns from everyone and everything. And I feel like that opens up the door to so many more opportunities to seeing things in different perspective. And be a chameleon. There's nothing wrong with that. People get really, you know, like, uh, this is who I am. If you don't like it, I'm sorry. And I'm like, no, I'm willing to change. I'm willing to Mm-hmm. soften or harden or whatever you need me to be. Mm-hmm. I'm okay with that. There's no shame in that. Um, you want me to be taller, I'll be taller. You want me to be blonder, I'll be blonder. Like you want me to be whatever it is. It's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. Yeah. Um, and so, but a lot of people are like, no, you have to be strict and follow what you, your, your one true path. And eh, not necessarily. Yeah, absolutely. So in this next stage, like when you look back at your, at your life, do you, do you see it in, in various stages or various kind of seasons? Absolutely. Um, uh, I, I see the first stage, uh, was, was, was getting the building blocks that I was going to need, watching the people that I needed to watch, listening to them, emulating them, following them, and then taking lots of risks. And this is what age range as much as you can while your opportunity costs are at their lowest. 
What, when is your opportunity cost going to be at their lowest? You don't have a mortgage. You don't have a spouse. You don't have kids. Take risks. Mm-hmm. You're never going to have a chance to do this again. So go for it. Just go for it. That, I'm going to say, is from when you're like, you know, I don't know, 15 to, well, now it might be 35, right? I mean, my day, everybody was kind of married in your, by about late 20s, but mm-hmm. a little bit, take those risks. You'll know when your opportunity costs have risen because you'll be writing that mortgage check right. you know, or you'll have right. a stroller next to you. Um, then you've got the next stage of your life, which is really the, the, the climb. And you're growing and make sure that it's exciting and climb as many different mountains as you can. And don't just think that there's only one climb. Try to make as many climbs as you can. Because as I said, if you, so I know some people that will start a company and they'll sell it and they're 30 years old and they're like, oh crap, I feel lost. Like, Well, that's so sad. You're 30 years old and you're lost. Like you're just starting your life. Um, and then you have people at the end of their life who will sell their company and they'll, they literally retire and die. And so I tell them, don't retire, rewire, like find something else. Cause if you t- retire, there's a good chance you're going to drop dead cause you have no reason to get up in the morning. Right. So at any age or stage, you need to have that passion, that reason to want to get up. Or you know what? You may just be like, Hey, I'm just going to take some Ambien and not wake up. Right. And how hard, how sad, right? Yeah. So we, we don't want that. But so I'm now in that third stage, mm-hmm. which I can't believe I'm in that third stage. But if they say that we're going to live to be 100, That's then right. maybe That's I'm not right. there yet, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. So I don't know. But I feel that while my packaging may look like I'm in the third stage, inside I still feel like a kid. Inside I still have that curiosity and that wonder. I'll often say like, you know, hey, the wrapping is a little wrinkled, but the product inside is still fresh and doesn't necessarily have an expiration date. And... So I, you know, I hope that passion does come across because it's how I feel. And I want to, you know, I know old people who are 30 and I know young people who are 90 and it's all how you feel and how you see life Mm. and how you address life. And do you attack life with a passion and a love and a curiosity or do you just wait for things to happen and then just go, now what? Now what? You don't want to be a now what? Yeah. You want to be on the offense, right? You want to be a right now. So, That's good. I yeah. love I love all the and I want to ask you about all of the phrases and the the cute aphorisms and well besides if they're all made up right. quite frankly <laughs> okay. if I, if if it's a famous poem but the rest are just Stacyisms. That's I so suppose. good. The Stacyisms. I, mean, I I always I said with my friends that they're they're cliches for a reason, right? Because they're they're true. So what are these? Just come from different Stacyisms. These cliches. What are your What are your well, thoughts I, on that? Well, you know, I don't have much of a filter, and I'm a little bit famous for that. But I also try not to be offensive mm-hmm. or say things that are horrible. But usually I will say things and quite often the whole room will go, did she just say that? Or did you say it out loud? <laughs> she said that out loud, didn't they? And I'll go, oh, my evil twin, just forgive me. I can't help myself. But you know what? I'm true to myself and I I don't say anything that really hurts or offends anybody. Yeah. I just kind of say how I'm feeling. And I hope that sometimes I wish more people would do that because I think people are often so guarded because they want to say just the right thing and they want to be impressive and they want to be, and I always think, you know, you know, when you're impressive, when you're authentic Mm. and I meet so many, um, people of all ages, right? Men and women of all ages. And it is, it's the authentic ones that I connect with and they're the ones I want to help the most. So it's the guarded, very quaffed and Mm -hmm. very, you know, I've got Mm -hmm. this or, you know, I'm scripted. That I just can't make a connection with. And mm-hmm. so it's really hard for me to actually be collaborative with them. Yeah. Because 
I don't feel it. It's really interesting. And one of the other things that I have is I really follow my gut, my instinct. I can't tell you how many meetings I've been at with a lot of men. I might be the only woman at the table and they're all talking about it. And I'll say, um, my gut just, and they go, Ugh. you see the eye rolls. You see like all these guys rolling their eyes. Oh boy, here she goes, her gut. But guess what? My gut, I'll put my gut up against your logic any day. My gut's pretty good. And when I, and it serves me well. And when I don't listen to it and I let my head take over from my heart because it just doesn't seem logical, that's when I get screwed up. So your instinct and your gut cultivate it because it can serve you really well. And don't let anybody tell you otherwise. I, I, have you had that feeling? Absolutely. Well, and it's always, I'm fascinated by the science behind it too, because of the gut, they're calling the gut the second brain, right? And all the science that's revealing that you have even more neural connections in your gut than you do in your brain firing. So there's this fascinating science that's coming out all around the power of like, when we say we have that gut feeling, that intuition, how literally how that's the truth with Just it. saying that might be our third eye then. Yeah. Wow. Could be, that's, right? that's very cool. Yeah. But you, yeah. But follow it. A hundred percent. And don't be afraid of it. And, and I feel like, I mean, even at this point in my life, I, I, I can, I have enough experiences and evidence to support that and to support Hey, when I, I know when I'm ignoring my intuition, when I'm ignoring my gut and this is what happens. And don't you know when you're, when you're like, I feel like we all have, uh, like, uh, what do you call them? Guardrails. Yeah. Don't you kind of know when you're like off your guardrail, you don't yeah. feel good. Things are just not working for you. They're mm -hmm. not feeling good. That's your intuition saying you're off track. Right. That's your personal guardrails. Like, come on over a little further this way. So I invested in a play. I've never invested in a play. Somebody sent this to me a few years back and I looked at the workshop and I watched it, and then I watched it again, and then I watched it again. I said, I said I would never invest in Broadway plays because it's ridiculously speculative. But A, it was all women. I mean, female funded, female produced, female everything. It's called Jaggy Little Pill. Well, fast forward, we've been nominated for 15 Tonys this year. That's so good. And the most of any play, like second, like we're tied with Hamilton. And I'm so proud of it. Why? Because logically, I shouldn't have invested in this. Right. I was so out of my wheelhouse. And the funny thing is when people go, ooh, you're a producer? Ooh, are you? And I'm like, I'm actually a Broadway investor because I'm not making creative decisions here and I'm not fooling anybody. I wrote a check. But that being said, I had the gut and the instinct to go, wow, this is revolutionary. Mm. This is going to change things. You know how like Hamilton brought in a whole new audience of theater goers? Totally. We're not taking from other shows. We are bringing people in who would never have come to watch a show. Wow. And that's what I love about this so much. So I rolled the dice on this because my gut said, there's never been anything like this. This is disruptive. So again, I don't care what the product is. As long as it's solving a huge problem, disruptive, mm -hmm. has a huge addressable market and has an extraordinary team, I'm in. And you know what? I might be winning a Tony this summer. That's so cool. so I'm, I'm the accidental Tony who is winning producer. That's, uh, life is one big accident waiting to happen when you view it this exactly. way, right? You lead with that curiosity. You're open to it. You're following these breadcrumbs. And you all of a sudden, you find yourself producing a Broadway. And the person <laughs> that brought it to me is a neighbor and a friend of mine who I'm you know, just really close with. And would I have ever thought that he would have brought this to me? No. And we're having the time of our life. We're having a ball. I mean, we're, we're going to start up again October 21st, and I'm really I'm excited. But I'm so it. proud of it. I can't wait to sit with you. And when I go watch it, I take the last row. I don't want to be up close. I've seen it plenty of times. Yeah, yeah. I love to watch the people's, the audience's reaction to it. There is a visceral response that is unlike anything I've ever wow. seen. People white knuckle their chairs. They're crying. They can't get out of their seats, but they all get out of their seats after one particular number, which I'm not going to ruin it for your listeners. There's one particular number where without fail gets a standing ovation mid-play. Wow. Not the end. 
mid I got chills play. just as you're saying that. <laughs> and I have seen it t- dozens of times. And I don't care if it's in Cambridge at the ART with a bunch of people in Birkenstocks and, you know, white hair. And I'm like, oh, they're going to hate this. Nope. They jump out of their seat after this number. So it is such an important Jagged story. Little Jagged that- Little Pill. And, all right. I'll say the name of the number. Yeah. It's You Ought to Know. Uh, and Lauren, she's amazing. And whenever she sings, you ought to know, I don't care who's watching it, they yeah. jump out of their seat. Yeah. And so I just wait for that. And sometimes I'll leave after that. But um, I, I love watching them and hearing the audience members going, oh my God, was this written for me? Oh, I wish I had this five years ago. Oh, mm. my life would have been so much easier Powerful. if I had this. And then I feel like I'm doing something mm-hmm. that is good for humanity, not just I didn't do this to get a Tony, right. but by the way, I made up. I may end up getting a Tony, and that's my life in a nutshell. I never do anything for something very specific. I do it because it feels good. I do it because it seems like the right thing mm-hmm. to do, mm-hmm. and then I accidentally succeed. <laughs> I don't know how it happens, but it does. That's so wonderful. I, what I notice is that your the the function remains steady across all these different things that you're working on. The passions there, the curiosities there, the function of disruption is there, the empowerment's there, but the form that it takes seems to change. Whether it's five hundred one c three. And the one time I didn't do that, I lost everything. It was a restaurant in Culver City. <laughs> And I had no right investing in that. And it was probably it, logically, it looked like it made it sense. It did because we were right next to all the studios right. and they were going to have all their lunches from us. And, and I invested before I actually went and looked at the place. And then when I got there and I couldn't find a parking space, I said, oh my God, I got here an hour early and I can't find a parking space. If I can't find a parking space, how are people going to come and dine here? Right. Can I get my money back? No, it's too late. And I took it as a capital loss because every a once great, in a while you need those two. But still. Great, great learning experience though, nonetheless. Absolutely. And it, it was, it was logical, Yeah, but it was stupid. So. Do, do you feel like there's these opportunities, the opportunities come to you? Do you, do you go actively seek them? It seems like, you know, your neighbor comes to you or the neighbor's a tennis player, right? Or you, you talk to somebody here. What do you attribute to uncovering or discovering those opportunities? Well, again, it's my curiosity. Yeah. So I'm always looking, searching, um, I'm the person who will look up on AngelList uh, job opportunities. I don't need a job, but I like to know about them. So when I meet somebody and they say, ah, I just moved to Austin. Do you happen to know anybody who's looking for a marketing something, something? I'm like, you know what? That's so Match cool. is looking, you know, or whatever. Yeah. Somebody's, yeah. whatever it is, is looking. So I like to have that because again, it's my Jewish mother collaborative nature to try to help people. So I will look at job openings, mm-hmm. things like that. But I also, it's the breadcrumbs. Yeah. And putting people together is a passion of mine. And I don't do it for any other reason than because I love to do it. But ironically, again, good things seem to happen. So someone says, oh my God, thank you for that idea. Will you now be the head of it? Or will you this or that? And people seem, they remember, Yeah, which which is lovely. And so I get included in a lot of very exciting things. I pinch myself at all of them. I say to myself all the time, how did I get from there to here? I can't believe it. I'm never like, oh, another extraordinary evening. Like, no, everyone is unique and amazing. And it doesn't necessarily have to be at, you know, the White House Christmas party, but it's going to get an equally, Mm -hmm. oh my God, response out of me. And that's how I live my life, always in awe and wonder and gratitude. And they keep on coming. They do. I, I love just, it. I, you know, I'm, my kids <laughs> no say to me, they're like, you were home like, you know, eight nights a week for 25 years and now you're gone. And I said, I know, isn't it great? <laughs> 
I love it. Well, I, I'm really inspired by everything that you're sharing and the philosophy on living life. I definitely admire and look up to it and it's inspiring me in many ways and, and I Thank hope the listeners as well. So And finding your others that's because it. as we said, whether it's tennis or I've recently become like the accidental political activist, yeah. but it's because, and I'm not going to get political now, but it's because I learned things that were contrary to what I knew growing up. And I said, wow, I need to make a difference for my grandchildren that will come here someday or for my children. And so once you know better, you have to do better. Mm. And that's opened up a whole nother world for me that I find fascinating and exciting. And again, make yourself curious, even if you're not naturally curious, because once you start asking the questions and you start showing up at different things, you're going to become interesting and you're going to be interested in so many different things. And you're going to find that you're going to have a really full life. And that's what we all want, right? More than anything else. More joy. More joy. <laughs> I love it. Well, Stacy, thank you so much for coming on. Is there anything else that you'd like to share in, in closing here as we wrap up? Just how proud I am of you. I'm sorry, <laughs> I, don't, you. I don't mean to get mushy on you, but I've known you since you were a little boy. And you are so true to yourself because you are the same Josh you were when you were six years old. And, and, I've seen, and, and the 16-year-old Josh and the 22-year-old Josh. And you're as authentic as it comes. Um, I, I go to a lot of, uh, different events where people are, we'll call them self-help gurus mm. or inspiring or coaches or whatever, wherever they are nine times out of 10, they're full of shit. Yeah. And I can, again, I feel it the minute I walk in and I, you know, go, oh, this feels, I got to go take a shower. <laughs> um, you're the real deal, Josh. Appreciate that. And, um, everything tells me that you are headed for greatness. Is that greatness going to come in the form of a huge bank account? I don't know, but whatever it is, it's going to be great. And I have a feeling it's going to be helping an extraordinary amount of people. And in the process, you're helping yourself because you're that kind of person. Thank you. That means a lot. And um, I can't wait to do it. Still enjoy- enjoying the climb every step of the way. And uh, I want to watch every I'm grateful climb. to have you on my team. I uh, appreciate it. <laughs> team church. That's Woo! right. All right. Love you lots. Thanks for coming on. Love you on. more.